Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. How are we all feeling about 2022? Personally, I'm still holding out hope that things will turn around this year. And if the guests on today's show can be held up as a harbinger of things to come, I'd say 2022 is going to be a brighter year for sure. Here's what you can expect in the next hour. COVID-19 has led to the largest mass disruption of education in modern human history. Ontario, in particular, has suffered the longest school closures in Canada and is amongst the highest in North America and Europe comparing regional averages. Protecting education as an essential service is a policy choice, says my first guest today, Dr. Prachi Sarvastava. Prachi will be joining what she said from now until June every month to arm you with information and questions to ask policymakers and politicians as we approach the June provincial election in Ontario. Anne Brody had to dig deep this week to find the best of the best in entertainment with new theatrical releases in short supply. She delivers, though, with some can't-miss movies and shows to catch at home right now to beat the Omicron blues. Whether by circumstance or choice, many women have found themselves stuck in a rut as of late. This year, what she said in partnership with The Sacred Space is going to help get you unstuck. Denise Chand and Jennifer John are certified cognitive behavioral and relationship coaches, unstuck experts, authors, and founders of the Sacred Space Coaching. In 2022, they will be joining me every month with tips and tools to get us back on a path that empowers us to chase our dreams. What's the cost of love? Haley McGee interviewed her exes and enlisted the help of a mathematician to create a formula with 87 variables to find the true cost of love in her upcoming book, The Ex-Boyfriend Yard Sale. Haley joins me today to discuss how her attempt to turn sentimental value into cold, hard cash became a much bigger lesson in the value of failed relationships. Finally, if current conditions in Ontario or even the ongoing pandemic have you questioning your commitment to dry January, I'd like you to pause before you uncork that bottle of wine and listen to Nadine Araxi. A dry January MVP, Nadine joins me today to share some tips for making it through January without alcohol and possibly beyond. It's another full week at What She Said with interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now on 105.9 The Region. It's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new No matter where you sit on the politics that surround this pandemic, there is little doubt we all agree that the disruption to education, particularly in Ontario, has been mismanaged. Dr. Prachi Sarvastava is tenured associate professor at Western University, specializing in education and global development and visiting professor at McGill University. She has been tirelessly working on the global education emergency caused by COVID-19 since early 2020. She has led high-level policy briefs on education policy and planning and equity implications for the official global engagement group of the G20 for the 2020 and 2021 G20 summits. She is joining me today to discuss the current state of education in Ontario as students enter yet another period of disruption. Welcome back to the show, Prachi. Hi, Candice. Thanks for having me back. So first question, what do you think? We just had the announcement. Uh, we are pre-recording this interview, obviously, but we just had the announcement that students will be out of school uh, until the 17th. Do you believe they'll be back? You know, I, 
I have no crystal ball here, Candice, you know, but it, the fact that we're having to ask this question in January of 2022, I think is the bigger problem. Whether or not they'll be back, how long the closures will be for, what the real plan is for out of, you know, for, for, for virtual instruction and virtual education. These are the kinds of questions that one asks at the beginning of, of, of an emergency it certainly should not be the case that we are 21 months into this and we don't have that many more answers. You know, there were some other provinces, for example, Quebec, that had announced before the break that they were already going to extend. They were going to they were going to uh, extend their closures uh, a week extra. Some of the other provinces had made these announcements. Of course, it's an evolving situation, but this variant, the news of this variant, thanks to Tireless colleagues in South Africa were, was was received actually quite um, now almost two months almost two months ago now there are ways to plan and I think a, a high level of frustration is being felt by a, you know the province uh, by citizens uh, parents but really everyone because of the fact that the transparency on planning and whether or not there has been any planning is just not there. I think parents have you know parents and students have no trust in this government anymore, which is why I asked the question, do you think we'll be back on the 17th? Because I think there is no trust anymore and everybody's just kind of throwing their hands up. So let's talk about the, that they've ceased, the government has ceased data collection and reporting on school cases. Tell me your thoughts on this. What is this going to create in the education system? This is inexplicable to me. And in fact, you know, I have been quite critical of, of, of many of the um, education initiatives that have been implemented here in Ontario uh, during the pandemic. But one of the uh, silver bright spots, actually, and I've been quite open about that as well, is the fact that um, the Ministry of Education was reporting school-based cases as of early September 2020. So actually, that was one of the bright spots, and, and it was doing it it, in a relatively more transparent, it wasn't perfect, but it was doing it in a relatively more transparent manner than other provinces. And as a result, we were able to monitor the situation. Uh, there were a number of us, I myself led the creation of the COVID-19 school dashboard, where we visualized all the cases across the province. Uh, and you could know, you know, in terms of which schools had cases, whether they were school uh, the school student cases or staff cases or unidentified cases. And then we linked that to the sociodemographic um, data for, ev for every school so that you could understand what the school population demographic was. You know, a school that's affected that has low-income students is different from a school that has uh, relatively fewer low-income students. We just know that in terms of the way that dynamics work. So that was one of the bright spots of the, the, the engagement, the availability of the public data. Uh, and, and we have to remember those, those data are public. You know, they, they might be held by the Ministry of Education or Ministry of Health, but they're public data in the sense that they're generated from the, pub, you know, from the public on behalf of the public. So the fact that we're not going to be collecting or reporting those data is inexplicable to me. I don't understand how... You know, why we would not want to do that, it would help on, on just on a citizen level, it would help uh, parents and the general community understand what's going on in their schools or in their neighborhoods. It would help the teachers to know what's happening when it's there. Um, and from a policy planning perspective, I mean, from the level of administration, it's in the government's best interest to continue collecting and publishing these data because how else does the government know what to do? How else will it know how to prioritize certain regions? Or how else will it know whether or not we are in a hotspot area or not in a hotspot area? How we can have a more integrated approach? How we can have a more differentiated approach? Is it really the case that all school schools have to be open and shut at exactly the same time? Or should there be a differential approach to school opening and school closures? I know that this morning, this is, we are taping on January 3rd, and this is the morning where that announcement had been made, has been made by the Premier that the schools will be closed for an additional two weeks, and that's uniformly made across the province. A number of initial reactions to this by journalists and by other uh, concerned citizens 
has been this feels just like March 2020. It feels just like January 2021. Uh, but let me be, be clear. In January 2021, it was still somewhat of a differentiated approach. There were certain PHUs and certain boards that were allowed to have in-person instruction. Um, and, and that kind of happened throughout January to February. We, we then had full reopening of the system, including schools in Toronto, in February of 21 until April of 21, when we then had the, the next mass shutdown that went from April 21 to June 21, right? So that was still a differentiated approach. I don't know how one can take a differentiated approach when one doesn't have the data. In March 2020, Ontario and Canada did what the vast majority of countries did at that time, which was school closures en masse. And that was because, and that was like more than 90% of countries did that. And that was because we really didn't know anything about the virus. We didn't know about transmission. We didn't know how it was going to affect different cohorts of populations. We had no treatment. We had no vaccines. We had no tests. We had no rapid tests. We had, we had very little. We had tests, but we didn't have the rapid tests. We didn't have availability of this test on masks. We had no idea about masks or no masks. We had no information. So at that time, schools were shut. But now it is January 22. And yes, we have the Omicron variant. And I am not a public health or medical expert, but I am an expert on education planning and administration. And I can tell you that not having a contingency plan is like getting into your car, driving on the highway and not putting on your seatbelt. It's like going kayaking and not putting on your life vest. You need, we need to have a contingency plan. We need to have a backup plan, which is well thought of both in terms of Delivering education in schools in person, which we know is the absolute ideal way. This is not ideology. This is evidence. The ideal way for instruction is to be delivered in schools in person as long as possible. If that is not, if that is not possible, then we need to have a contingency plan that is going to be an appropriate, sensible plan for remote learning, which is not what we have now. And we've had more, almost two years to develop that. It really should have been developed after that first mass closure between March and June of 2020, because we have the principles in place. We know what needs to be done. All it requires is some planning. Okay. Let's take a quick uh, commercial break. We'll be right back with Dr. Prachi Sarvastavada uh, talking about the education uh, system in Ontario right now, which a lot of parents are struggling with. with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. It's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new life. We are back with Dr. Pachi Sravastava, and we are discussing uh, the state of education in Ontario right now and the closure until the 17th, but I really want to hear about the economic consequences of this because I think this will really blow people's mind because they're thinking of the education consequences, but this is a lot more far-reaching. So tell me about that. One of the, the main um, factors for economic success, both individually as a person and as a society, is education. And people might think, you know, that's not so important. Um, and I'd be the last person to say it's the only consequence, but it's one that people need to understand. It has an individual effect. If I, If my education is disrupted for a very significant amount of time, it means I'm going to have a, a, a lesser chance at, at getting a, a job that's going to be secure, a lesser chance at lifting my family out of poverty or having social mobility, a lesser chance of having a better uh, outcome in life. This is um, shown across the board. As a society, it means that our countries will suffer in terms of the kinds of economic output, productivity, but also um, in terms of allowing people to participate in the labor market, like women in particular, whenever there are long disruptions, 
women's labor is really strongly affected. They're unable to actually participate as much. And that really takes away from the, the opportunities in their own lives as well in society to really prosper. In terms of hard numbers, the modeling on this, um, on, on, on school closures and COVID-19 has been done globally by some of the best education economists. And what they saw is that based on 14 to 16 weeks of school closure, and remember in Ontario, we're at 20, we're now going to be at 29 weeks if we go all the way to March, May 20. Yeah, right. But just based on up to four months of school closure, you're looking at a loss, brace yourself, of $17 trillion. $17 trillion of a loss based on just four months of school closures. Okay. We got way more than that. We have double that. Now, what that means in terms of a society, a high income country like Canada, they then said, okay, what does that mean in terms of, so that's the individual cost. That's this cohort, this generation of human beings are likely to lose cumulatively $17 trillion of income as a result of the school closures. What that means on, on a country level for a high income country is that could mean up to 6% of GDP for a country like Canada. And for a country, for, for this current year, for this current year GDP, what that means in real numbers is up to 90 to $95 billion in our country's economy growth. That's what 6% of our GDP amounts to. The worst case scenario, but it could happen. StatsCan did a study, uh, did a quick study last year. They did a model and they looked at Students graduating from high school, college, and university, the 2020 or 20, I think it was the 2020 cohort, and they estimated uh, an individual income loss of twenty to $40,000 for those students over the next five years as a result of these consequences. So the economic effects are real, and they're actually immediately tied to well-being. They're immediately tied to families. They're immediately tied to what that means for a generation of our citizens. And, and the worst part of it is that we are in Canada, which is a G7 country. And I think listeners need to understand being a G7, you're part of that club. What it means is that we are one of the wealthiest, highest income liberal democracies in the world. There are only seven countries in that club. Canada is one of them. And if you look at the cohorts, the number of children that attend elementary and secondary education in that cohort, we have the smallest cohort. So we have one of the highest number of resources and one of the smallest number of people to cater for to ensure education continuity. When you put it in those terms, and we also per capita have one of the highest civil services here in Canada, which means that we actually have a bureaucratic structure that should allow us to support the planning to cater to this. We have the resources, we have a smaller population relative to other G7 countries that are attending schools, and we have the bureaucratic uh, structure, and we are in a time of relative peace and stability in Canada unlike many other countries. This is the this and climate change are the two big things that we really, really do need to attend to in terms of the big global challenges. Well, I wish I could give you the whole hour for the show today. Unfortunately, uh, we're out of time. I'm going to have you back, though, uh, because what I love is that you come with data, you come with facts, and we need that uh, as we go forward this year in an election year, I might add. Uh, so we need, to, we need to be arming people with these facts and figures. So thank you very much for joining me today, Prachi. Uh, we'll have you back again soon. Thank you so much. Sure, Candice. Thanks for inviting me. Joining me now for the first uh, Saturday Night at the Movies of 2022 is Anne Brody. 
And Anne, you're not too impressed with what's out there this week in entertainment. This this doesn't bode well for 2022. All right. Tell me about The Tender Bar. Yes. Well, George Clooney directs this. It's a true story of um, a guy who grew up on Long Island. His uncle is played by Ben Affleck and Dan Daniel Ranieri plays the young guy. Oh, he, he's just superb. Um, he's this boy has never met his father before, but he's a father's a DJ. So he's, he's grown up hearing him on the radio. Uh, so it's all about this family and the, the tears in it. And the, they're kind of a strange family. They're, they're really poor. They live in a really dilapidated house and, uh, Ben Affleck does his best to guide the young kid, but Ben Affleck's really corrupt. So it's, it's an interesting thing. Not my favorite film, but it's there and it's on um, Prime. Yeah. I have to say it, w- it was nice to see Christopher Lloyd. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He pops up a lot in that. Like him. I. Such a hero. And he's lasted. Yeah. Right? Like he's a, he's a good, good character yes. actor. <laughs> okay. Okay. So now we're at McGruber. Season three on um, Showcase. So it's Will Forte, Kristen Wiig, Ryan Philippe, and um, uh, Sam Elliott and Lawrence Fishburne. I was going to say T.S. Elliott. So uh, it's, it's based on a movie that's based on a Saturday Night Live comedy sketch, which is based on the series MacGyver. So it's about these people trying to, you know, get ahead and, and make do and solve mysteries and, and save the world uh, using their wits. I just found it so grating and so repetitive and dull. I just, I, I didn't even finish the first episode of season three. So, you know, this is what I'm talking about. Not a great week. All right. So I want to, I want to take a couple of minutes. I want to take a couple of minutes then. Let's talk about uh, Finding Lucy because there has been some backlash about uh, the Finding the Ricardos with um, Nicole Kidman, people are saying they don't like her performance. It's not It's not like Lucy at all. You think this documentary, Finding Lucy, will shed some light on that. Do you want to share you, why? Yeah, people are upset because Nicole Kidman isn't funny as Lucy. Well, Lucy was not a funny person. She acted funny. She had tremendous uh, physical comedy skills. But, you know, she had to claw her way through four different studios and then finally land in TV, which was bad for her reputation. But she created this powerhouse. It absolutely changed uh, comedy sitcoms. It changed technology. It made her star around the world. And she didn't do that by being sweet and funny and nutty. She did it by being tough. And she's a, she was a tough woman. So Finding Lucy, which is a documentary from PBS in 2000, is there for free on YouTube. And it really offers some insights into what she had to face and overcome. She was the first female president of a studio, first woman to own a studio, Desi Lu. And her husband, Desi Arnaz, made so many technical advances and innovations just out of this world. So they were a hardworking couple. She wasn't funny. No, she was scripted funny. She behaved funny. She was physically comic, but there's so much more to her story. I like this because it draws some parallels to, you know, the more things change, the more things stay the same. Uh, we talk a lot about that, you know, what people see on social media, on Instagram and and Facebook not being real life. And same for Lucy, really, what she was portraying on the TV show was not her real life. And so we have to account for that, right? Uh, you know, there is that forward facing <laughs> side we all show. Well, yeah. And she was also the first woman to say pre- first person to say pregnant on the air she was uh, pregnant with uh uh one of her children when she shot uh, one of the seasons and and um the first woman to look pregnant on tv so people and they knew, people knew it was her real life pregnancy i think they honestly thought over the years and seasons that that show ran and through reruns that that was lucy so she wasn't lucy ricardo she was lucille ball tough business there. I said it. Okay. <laughs> so so you have um, all of these and more of what you could scrounge up for us in this very <laughs> right. uh, 
<laughs> boring start to the year. Uh, <laughs> but you did find the best of the best. And it's on what she said, talk.com. You'll be back next week with more. And thank you so much. Thanks, Candace. with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. I've been feeling a little stuck as of late partially due to circumstance and partially due to what's happening in my brain. If you're feeling like you're caught in a rut as well, then stick around for this next interview. Denise Chan and Jennifer John are certified cognitive behavioral and relationship coaches, unstuck experts, authors, and founders of the Sacred Space Coaching, helping women across North America make empowering shifts to get unstuck in life and relationships and become unstoppable. They are also joining what she said for the next 12 months to help us all get unstuck and conquer 2022. They join me now to discuss. Welcome to the show, Denise and Jennifer. Thank you for having us. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I'm so thrilled to have you two joining me for the next 12 months. This is going to be great. And I just want to Right off the top, let everybody know that we recorded a long podcast to kick off the new year that people can go subscribe to what she said with Candace Sampson on their favorite podcast provider and listen to that episode because it really sets people up for what's to come. But let's talk about what we can expect in these 12 uh, sort of, I guess, masterclasses, we'll call them over the next year. Uh, Who wants to start? I'll go first. So we're going to be talking about self-sabotage. We're explaining why we said why, what it is, why we do it, and how to help you to identify blocks and patterns, behavioral patterns, and getting to the root of everything of why we self-sabotage. Nobody intentionally does it, but we we do it. And we're going to be walking you through journeying with everyone for the next 12 months, and by the end of the 12 months, we're going to get you onto a path that will liberate you, empower you, and have you live the best life you've always dreamed of. So this is the best way to start 2022. Yeah, I think it's important to note, too, you know, we talked about this in the podcast. We don't have to be ruled by our circumstances. And I mean, a lot of what's happening right now is circumstance, but we can still get ourselves unstuck. Right, Jennifer? Yes, we can. And one of the things in in getting unstuck, and that's what we're going to be journeying through through the next 12 months, is as, you know, Denise mentioned it quickly, is that getting to the root of the stuckness. Why are you stuck? And looking at what areas are you feeling stuck? And so is it your life? Is it your career? Is it a relationship? And once you understand that, then you move to what are the feelings, emotions, and thoughts that are driving that feeling of stuckness? And so once you hone in onto that um, and understand why you're feeling stuck, then we can move and shift you out of that current state. You talk a lot about self-reflection, which I think is one of the most valuable skills anybody can have. So over the next month between, say, this episode and the next one, how can people spend some time self-reflecting? What are some things they can do to really hone in on what is keeping them stuck? The first thing that people can do is journaling. I know a lot of people don't like journaling, but whether it's just pen and paper, like record, voice record, do a voice on a video, either a video diary, a voice diary, or just writing notes in your, um, in your, on your phone. So that first like, self-infraction is so important because it is, it helps you to go inside, deeper inside layers and layers, like an onion peeling back layers and layers and layers. It allows you to have that alone time, that alone time. There was a quote I heard years ago that says, loneliness without you, how would I know me? And that's, that's what it is. So self-reflection is going into a deeper, deeper layer at silencing the voice. So tips start to journalize, like journal everything, make a note of that. Um, 
sit there, watch your behavior patterns, um, how you react rather than be um, reactive to a situation. We're going to teach people about that, being reactive versus being responsive and the benefits of all that. So I, the first part of it, I would suggest everybody to do is start to journal. That is the greatest and it's the first place that I would recommend anybody that's listening right now is to journal. Jennifer, do you have anything to add to this? Um, one of the things that Denise and I, we, when we're working with clients is what we do is we, there's an exercise, a technique that we teach our clients to become an observer of your own thoughts. And so as you're doing that deep reflection, you know, and you're journaling, pay attention to your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions um, that are driving some of the, the, the actions that you're taking. And so as you're doing that, you will actually see what's behind the behavioral mm-hmm. patterns, whether it's defeating or whether it's, it's, you know, a pattern that you would want to continue repeating to help push you forward, what's driving that? And usually it's a thought of feeling really emotion. And once you get to the core of that, you start to unravel, unpack sort of um, the defeating and self-sabotaging behavioral patterns that need to change. Yeah. And we talked about this in the podcast a little bit about how emotions sometimes mm-hmm. override us and control us. And really we have to, we have to disconnect from that, right? It are it, we're, we're emo- human beings, we are emotional beings. I mean, that's who we are. And it's an, it actually takes a skill to, like, don't allow our emotion to control us, but we control our emotions. These are all things that are so easily said, like it just rolls off the tongue, but is it easy to practice? So again, like throughout this whole entire um, 12 months we're going to be journeying with you, is we're going to teach people how to, to, hone in on that, their emotions, how to become observer of your thoughts, how to be able to see why do I respond like this? Why do I react? What are your, what are your, your triggers? We all have triggers, a word, a, a, an email, somebody not responding to text, whatever it is. So it is a situation that's happened. It's just learning how to pull back. And what I call, I call this, um, again, I teach our clients this, I call E&P, and I do this for myself, extract and profile learning how to extract yourself emotionally from a situation and profile it and go, really, is this really as, as bad as it is? And if it is, how can I respond rather than react? Because at the end of the day, the result will affect me emotionally, my mental health, everything. Okay. Well, I'm excited to hop into this for the next year. Like I said, I feel a little bit selfish. Like I'm doing this just for me. I promise I'm doing it for everybody. Uh, having you join me this year, uh, this is going to be exciting. So get your journals out ladies and, and over the next month, really start doing that self-reflection, but you also have a 21 day challenge happening. So, uh, before we wrap up today's show, can you just tell us about that quickly? We're so excited about this. Um, it's a 20 day challenge. And what it is, is mindful practices to help you prepare for 2022, help you de-stress, you know, get, get over or get, you know, manage some of that sense of overwhelm and actually prepare yourself for the fulfilling life that you want to have for this amazing year. It is such an amazing time to start this and to get ahead and actually set goals, smarter goals for yourself. And we walk you through this. We help you, you know, provide encouragement, practices, um, you know, we inst- discussions, inspiring interactions. And we've created a Facebook group, especially for our audience, uh, the What She Said Talk audience. And so we're welcoming, inviting everybody to jump on board and let's get started. Let's get this 2022 done in the right right way, in the right headspace, so that we can actually have a fulfilling year the way that we want to have this. All right. Well, we're going to put that up on the What She Said Talk Facebook page. We're going to have it listed in the liner notes of the show and on this video so people can join in. I am so excited to join you. Ladies, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, let's get unstuck in 2022. Thank, thank you so you much. for having me. We're so excited. If you've ever had a broken heart, you've no doubt asked the question, is love worth it? 
My next guest not only asked that question, but set out on a quest to find out the cost of love in her upcoming memoir, The Ex-Boyfriend Yard Sale, coming out on February 1st online and in bookstores everywhere. Haley McGee interviewed her exes and enlisted the help of a mathematician to create a formula with 87 variables to find the true cost of love. She joins me now to discuss. Welcome to the show, Haley. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So I have to ask, I mean, I think the basic question is love worth it? Spoiler, spoiler alert. I absolutely believe it is. And I think uh, love that fails is is an important part of uh, finding the value in love as well. And um, that's that was a really encouraging thing that I discovered through working on this book. So you said you were inspired to write this book by getting into credit card debt. Yes. And being heartbroken. So I'm curious how you equated those two things. Well, I had moved to London, England from Canada, where I was born and raised. Uh, about I moved about six years ago. And after the first year in the UK, I my career as an actor was not going as well as I'd hoped. My bank account had quickly dwindled and I was burning through my Canadian credit card, racking up debt. And I also found myself uh, single, having gone through a, a pretty significant heartbreak. And all of these things came together, a kind of trinity of tra tra personal tragedies at once. And I found myself in a real panic on the phone with Visa essentially bartering with Visa um, to give me a deal or something. And I ended up blurting out that I would uh, try to pay down my credit card debt by having a yard sale. And then I looked around my apartment and I realized that the only things I could sell had all been given to me by my various ex-boyfriends over the years. And so after that, I was off trying to translate sentimental value into cash. And you talk, uh, talk about putting a value on something like a mixtape which I thought was was funny because in our hearts, we might value that, you know, at a million dollars, but somebody else might, might not. Uh, so how did you come up with the values? Well, I worked with a mathematician. And so the first thing that we looked at was I created a big list of all the things I believe to be relevant to the cost of these sentimental objects. Things like, you know, how much the object cost, what the depreciation was, how long the relationship lasted. And then kind of more and more obscure things that could have an impact on value, like who broke up with who, how good the sex was, how much you cried in the relationship, who paid for more things in the relationship. And we looked at all these different factors. We figured out different ways to turn sort of words and anecdotes into numbers and then how those different factors related to each other. And after sort of a year of working together and a lot of testing, we managed to get this formula to spit out a price. Have you, do you know, do you know women who are applying this formula themselves? Well, I know myself and my, the formula is actually in the back of the uh, book, in the back of my memoir. You can cut it out of the book, which is a little sacrilegious, I know, but you can cut it out and tape it together and put it on your wall. But as of yet, no one has told me that they've actually used it themselves. So I'm waiting. It is rather com complex though. All right. So you also say, though, that you think that as a society, we place too much value on being coupled. What do you mean by that? I think that there is a lot of suffering uh, that people go through in their lives because they're so desperate to be in a relationship. They feel that they are, and I should speak for myself, you know, at times when I've been single, I've felt sort of less important or less valuable because I didn't have that uh, other person in my life, that significant other. And I think that it's so kind of fetishized with wedding culture and on social media, the way that people portray uh, themselves in relationships, that it it pressures people to find a mate. There's this kind of incredible pressure to find a mate. And then an, also an incredible pressure to stay in relationships that perhaps have run their course or that perhaps aren't serving either party anymore and i think if we had a belief that you know when a when a relationship is run its course that's okay and there was inherent value in it even if it doesn't ultimately last until one of you dies then 
we wouldn't feel so bad when we're not coupled and we wouldn't be so afraid of leaving relationships that aren't really serving us and aren't in our best interests anymore. And I just think people would be happier and freer. And, and uh, that's my hope that people come away from the book feeling emboldened to sort of behave with integrity when it comes to whether or not they want to be in a relationship. And to remember one is a whole number, right? You are complete. Oh, that is so good. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, Haley, I, I want people to be able to find you on social media and follow along because I know you're talking about this um, on your social channels. And w- where can they find the book when it comes out? They can find the book at any bookstore um, in Canada and in the U.S., online, in your local bookstore. And you can find me at Yes Haley McGee on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. All right, Haley, thanks so much. I'm looking forward to having you back on the show again. Oh, I'm looking forward to it too. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. conditions in Ontario or even the ongoing pandemic have you questioning your commitment to dry January, I'd like you to pause before you uncork that next bottle of wine. Nadine Araxi is obsessed with examining the stories we tell ourselves, the ones that keep us stuck, the ones that oppress us, and her passion is in rewriting those stories to empower women in marginalized groups. A dry January MVP, Nadine is joining me today to share some tips for making it through January without alcohol and possibly beyond. Welcome to the show, Nadine. Thanks for having me, Candace. Happy New Year. So happy New Year to you. So we're we're a week into January, and I feel like a lot of people are questioning if it's worth it at this point. <laughs> and and I want to start with the first the first question to you is why do we have to stop thinking about dry January as a pass-fail scenario. Yeah, that's really great. I think when we approach any habit, you know, uh, we're conditioned to think of things in the binary, right? Pass, fail, good, bad. And when we do that, we set ourselves up for failure because if we do make a mistake or we do let ourselves down or we don't follow through, then we kind of turn on ourselves, right? And our brain seeks to validate our subconscious beliefs. Um, and so if you have, you know, some hidden negative thoughts about yourself, you're going to validate those. You're going to affirm those. You're going to say, well, of course I failed. I don't succeed at anything. So right there, you kind of, you set yourself up from the beginning for failure. So what, um, in my work as a coach, uh, one of the things we really focus on is, starting way back, zooming out and focusing more on what you want than when you, what you don't want, because our brains are actually more responsive to positive signals than to negative signals. So if you sort of focus more on, I'm doing dry January because I want to feel lighter. I don't want to, um, rather than I want, I don't want to feel bloated. Um, your brain's going to respond better. Or, uh, you know, it's, I think we have the question like, why are you doing dry, dry January in the first place, right? So for me, from my personal experience, my um, starting to question my consumption of alcohol came from um, some studies that came out in 2018, where, you know, the long-term health impacts of alcohol in women uh, have been underreported and under-researched somewhat, and they kind of buried it because they didn't they, <laughs> how are we supposed to survive the patriarchy and the you know all the all the burdens of being a woman and a mom if we can't pour a glass of wine is was my initial thought. Um, and it's really about realizing that we're doing a lot of things on autopilot. Our brains are just used to it. You're like, well, I'm at a restaurant, although no one's at a restaurant right now, but um, (laughs) I'm at a restaurant. Why wouldn't I just 
order a drink. Um, you had a similar experience, right? I mean, my my sort of moment uh, came sort of waking up last year, um, you know, on Boxing Day with, with a hangover. You know, it was not an uncommon thing. And because I, like a lot of people, when the pandemic started, thought, well, you know, wine is going to get me through this. And actually, it just made things a lot worse. And so it was that sort of that recognition of it. And I didn't approach it like I'm never going to drink again. I just thought, I'm just going to see. And so I did 30. And then I thought, I'm going to try 30 more. And it just got easier. And then I ended up doing 210 days. And when I did have that first drink, I didn't attach guilt or failure to it. I had just sort of ended up redefining my relationship with alcohol. So this year, dry January feels easy. Right. Yeah. It, I think any time we sort of take on a challenge like that, it, what it does is it breaks that autopilot cycle in your mind of why are you reaching for that thing in the first place? And it's no longer, if you go 210 days, if even if you go 30 days, um, what it does is it breaks that impulse to reach for it when you're stressed or uncomfortable. Because we're not avoiding, you know, we're not, it's, it's not that we're like, hey, um, a glass of wine is going to make me feel better. Yes, maybe. But really what we're trying to do is in that feel better bit is we're trying to numb our uncomfortable feelings. So we're often avoiding an uncomfortable feeling. You know, every time we procrastinate, every time we give up on a, a habit change we're trying to do, it's because there's a subconscious belief in there like, I'm not good enough. I'm never going to get this. I don't know how to do this, whatever it is that we're trying to avoid. And we've as a society, we've embraced that alcohol is a perfectly fine way to, you know, make yourself feel better when you're having a hard day and whatnot. So when we do these like 30 day challenges and whatnot, if we stick to it, what's going to happen in that time is that you're going to break that autopilot loop. The thing to do, the thing that makes it a success for most people is to your point, what you said about your own experience is approaching it with curiosity. So when we start by asking some questions, like what happens if I don't drink for 30 days? What am I going to notice about myself? And then taking it from an observer standpoint, you know, sort of like you're, you have a hypothesis, a scientific hypothesis, and you're just collecting data. So at Kickstartology, my coaching company, we say collect data, not judgment. Right? Because as soon as you're going, oh, I'm good, I'm bad, oh, I suck today or whatnot, it's not helping. It's more like if you fall off, well, what, what happened yesterday? What, what was the reason? What thought did I have before I poured myself that glass of wine? What feeling did I have? Was it overwhelmed because schools are shutting down again? Or I might lose my job? Was it stress? And you start to, to notice those patterns, and we all have them, that lead us to make the, the choice. And I think one of the most powerful questions that we use in coaching, one of my favorite ones is what happens if I make a different choice? And then really taking that observer seat to watch, like what happens? Okay, I didn't drink, what happened? Uh, I'll give an example, which I may have given the last time I was on your podcast. When I did dry January, my bus at the time, my commute would let me off in front of this really cool Japanese hipster brewery. And so I'd get off the bus and I would go, beer. There would be like a thought in my head, beer. I'm not even a beer drinker, which made it more hilarious. And then I would kind of watch the thought like cross the screen of my mind. It would kind of go beer, 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 beer. And then it would pass, right? So it's kind of like waiting, giving yourself a few breaths and watching if that impulse passes before you act. That will serve you in your life across the board. The other thing um, that I really, really stress is, you know, we there's something we call the trying to try loop. Every time you hear yourself, I'm trying to do a dry, dry January. I'm trying to work out three times a week. As soon as you assign the word try, you're kind of already saying you're going to fail. So we say, don't try, decide. Yeah, a decision means, does it? Doesn't that mean a decision means like to cut off? So like you've cut off other uh, options, right? You've decided. Um, and and I love that you said, you know, like if you do have a drink, you know, question it, observe it. I mean, just don't. I think what happens is people go, oh, well, I've, I've, I'm done now. You dry, just, dry January is not just by the calendar dates. It could be 
from the mid mid January to mid February. I mean, you can decide to get back on and start again, right? Yeah, you're just giving yourself a bit of a fence, right? It's and, and to your point, your fence was 30 days, and then you're like, what happens if I go 30 more? Again, curiosity leading the way. Um, for me, it was I tried to go 100 days. I don't know why I came up with that number. And when the 100 passed, I, I didn't want to stop. I kept going for 120 days. And now I have a drastically different relationship with alcohol. I think it's interesting because right now it's very much in the cultural zeitgeist. I think women of our age, uh, a lot of us are watching the new uh, Sex in the City redo. The um, And just like that. And on that <laughs> show, you know, that show was... A, pivotal for me in my 20s as I was building my identity, even though the characters were older than me, very much around cosmopolitans and having fancy cocktails at fancy places. Um, And those characters are now in their 50s. And uh, one of the main characters on that show is currently realizing, oh, maybe what I thought was social drinking is actually I have a problem. And you know, most of us, when we think of alcoholism, we think of it as, you know, Meg Ryan in that Meg Ryan Andy Garcia movie where she's like hiding bottles and you know like it's like so extreme and and certainly for some people their drinking might be at that level but for most of us it's just kind of been the societal norm hey let's go out for a drink we say and the interesting thing for me is in the pandemic I started dating a Muslim man and he doesn't drink at all and so his he has a very different relationship to alcohol um, because it's not a thing for him. And so we don't even realize like how when we say let's go out for a drink or whatnot, how it's not an inclusive statement. Um, and then we don't realize all the stories we have about, oh, well, I'm a bourbon drinker or I'm a beer drinker, you know, or mommy needs a glass of wine. Those are all stories. And anytime we catch ourselves in a story that we've taught ourselves to believe, we can rewrite that story. Absolutely. And it's time to tell ourselves a different story. Uh, Nadine, thank you for joining me. I want people to be able to find you and connect with you. You always have great advice. So where can people do that? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm on Instagram as Nadine Araxi, and I'm sure you'll have that in your show notes. Um, And kickstartology.com is my coaching website and people can uh, book a consult there and get in touch with us. We have a free program coming up this month that will totally help kickstart your 2022, if you're thinking of, of starting a new habit or changing an existing one, um, get in touch. And I can't wait to help people in 2022. So the work we do is phenomenal. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for joining me, Nadine. That's it for What She Said for this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com. And be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to re-listen to this episode and find full details for all of today's guests. I'll be back next week with more What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.